Deborah Stone, coming to you from the Australian Catholic University, where we believe in asking the big questions. Banks should offer discounts to first-home buyers. Greenpeace should stick to legal protests. Australia should give more foreign aid. If you've ever made one of these statements or something like them, you've entered into a conversation about group duties. But is it possible that a bank or an organisation or a country should do anything? Can groups have duties or do all responsibilities ultimately devolve to the individual members of the group? With me to discuss this question is Dr Stephanie Collins, Associate Professor at the Dianoia Institute of Philosophy at the Australian Catholic University. Steph is the author of Group Duties, Their Existence and Their Implications for Individuals, and she's here in the ACU studio to share her insights. Welcome to Thinking Philosophy, Steph. Thanks, Deborah. It's great to be here. You've called your book Group Duties, so I guess you think groups can have duties, at least sometimes. Yes, although that's a complicated question. Uh, Only some groups can have duties. So when we think about all the objects we find in the world, we see tables, we see trees, we see children. These kinds of things we tend to think cannot have duties. Um, Ordinary adult humans, we tend to think can have duties. So one question that I ask in the book is what makes the difference between something that can't have a duty, something like a table or a tree or a young, very young child, and something that can, like you or I, an adult. Uh, And I argue that what matters for the ability to have duties is that you're capable of taking moral considerations into your decision making. Um, So moral considerations would be things like that you've made a promise to someone, that you're able to help someone, that you've harmed someone and therefore maybe should compensate them. Uh, So if you're able to take these sorts of considerations into your decision making, I argue, then you're the kind of thing that can have a moral duty. Uh, This means that tables and trees and most young children, although there's a question about how old they have to be to, to be able to bear duties, but most very young children can't have duties. Adult humans can. And I argue groups can as well because they have their own procedures for making decisions um, that are separate from the procedures of any one of their members that enables them to take moral considerations into their decision making in a kind of what I call a non-reductive kind of way. So they, they make decisions in a way that's not the same and not identical to the way that any of their members make decisions. Ah, so if I'm just with a group of people who I met at the bus stop, that doesn't constitute a group that has a group duty? I argue not, no. So in order for a group to be the kind of thing that can bear a moral duty, it has to have a decision-making procedure. It has to have an established procedure for making decisions. So examples would be majority voting, uh, uh, conversation. So um, if we have an established procedure where we're going to make a decision via conversation, which ideally happens in most sorts of boards of directors or senior management teams. Um, Dictatorship can be another form of group decision-making procedure um, if everyone's genuinely committed to abiding by the dictates. Uh, If we have any of these sorts of procedures in play that's been established, that we've all committed to, that we've all committed to abide by, um, then we're going to count as the kind of group that can have a duty, what I call the group moral agent. 
you and random people at the bus stop do, don't have any such procedure. Um, you haven't committed to any such procedure. It hasn't been established yet, so you're not going to count. So formal organisations like governments and corporations and maybe even clubs, other sorts of organisations that can have duties. Exactly, yes. Of course, any moral agent, you or I or ACU or Australia, can only have obligations to do things that it's able to do. Um, and if you take a club, like, for example, a tennis club or something, um, it can't necessarily take in every possible moral reason that there is. Um, it can't possibly... There are some, might be some more reasons that it can't consider. For example, um, it doesn't have anything that look like family relationships like you or I would have that would give rise to particular sorts of obligations grounded in emotional connection and this kind of thing. Uh, so there are going to be some sorts of duties that are, that are a bit sort of off the table for group agents. But uh, yeah, the kinds of groups that you mentioned will be able to bear at least obligations to restore harm that they've done. Um, to bring about great good, if they're capable of bringing about good, to keep their promises um, and those sorts of things. And do the duties of the groups differ from the duties of the individuals within the groups? Yes. In fact, this is uh, a point that I think is quite important. So groups almost always are going to have different abilities than the abilities of their members. So if we take the Medivac example... So the policy of evacuating asylum seekers from offshore processing facilities where those asylum seekers needed uh, medical treatment. Um, we can, of course, debate what the obligations were or weren't in that case. But the thing to notice here is that the ability to repeal that policy or to implement it in the first place is not an ability that any one person had on their own, not even Scott Morrison. Right? It required an across-party uh, set of votes um, in order to get that legislation uh, passed and repealed. Uh, and so you can see even someone like Scott Morrison, but on his own, does not have abilities that Australia as a whole has. Australia can do things that no one individual Australian can do because of the way it's set up, the way that it makes decisions, um, the kind of jurisdiction that it has over our laws. Uh, and so because the abilities of groups, the capacities of groups to do things like bring uh, asylum seekers onshore, um, because these abilities differ from the abilities of any of the members, the obligations, therefore, are also going to differ because the obligations of any agent are limited by what that agent is able to do. The obligation of any legislator can only be to vote this way or that way or debate this way or that way. No one legislator can have the obligation to implement or pass some given policy or law. Do groups tend to behave less morally responsibly than the individuals within them? Uh, you might be tempted to think yes, looking around in the world. Uh, this, of course, is um, what philosophers would call an empirical question. So it's a question for sociologists and political scientists rather than a conceptual question that philosophers tend to address. Um, but I think when we look out in the world, it's pretty clear that uh, a lot of groups are uh, have and are able to set themselves up so that they don't always act as morality would demand. 
and I think we can see some reasons for that in the theory of group agency. So what group agents are is they're groups of people that have come together to make decisions as a unit via a certain procedure, as I've been saying. And for many groups, there's an incentive, self-interest incentive, to set those procedures up such that those procedures don't attend to moral considerations. And I think we as a society tend to let groups get away with that in a way that we often don't let individuals get away with it. You know, we'll sort of say, oh, well, the, the purpose of a business is to pursue profit or um, the purpose of a state is to only look after its citizens, not attend to you know, the human rights of non-citizens, so on. So we as a society sort of allow group agents to set themselves up such that the only things that they think about are these quite narrow sorts of considerations, profit or very sort of local concerns. Um, whereas as individuals, we're often tempted to ask a bit more of each other. Um, so yes, I think group agents do tend to, we, when we look out in the world, we tend to see that they um, often flout morality's demands. Um, I don't think that's because they're unable to do so. I think it's because they, they structure themselves um, so that they're sort of blindsided to certain kinds of considerations where they could, un, you know, they could fix that. So given that, doesn't conceptualising groups as having duties enable the individuals within them to avoid responsibility? Excellent question. And that's a question that many philosophers have worried about, uh, that if we say, you know, AMP is to blame for sort of swindling customers or whatever it is, um, then we're, sort of, we're letting off the hook individual managers or shareholders or, or whoever it is. Um, my view is that um, it's, there's, enough, there's enough responsibility to go around for everybody. <laughs> so uh, when a group has a duty, a moral duty, a moral obligation, that will entail, by which I mean it will imply, it will require that the members of the group will also have obligations. So if ACU has an obligation, at least some members of ACU will have obligations. Probably, you know, Greg Craven, our VC, maybe you, maybe me, depending on what the content of the obligation is. So you're always going to find at least one individual in the group bearing an obligation. If Australia has an obligation uh, to keep the medevac policy in place, that's going to entail obligations on legislators not to vote to repeal that legislation, for example. Um, so, so there's going to be enough response. There's going to be responsibility at both levels, if you like, both the group level and the individual level. So you're actually putting more responsibility on individuals in some ways because you're saying you have now your responsibilities not just as an individual but also as a member of all the groups that you're a member of. Absolutely, yes. And this can start to sound quite overwhelming. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's a reaction that I get a fair bit. And there's a general um, philosophical question here underlying this sort of concern that people have, which is the question of the overall demandingness of morality. Can morality really demand that I you know, use all my time and energy uh, making sure that all these obligations are met, not just the ones that I as an individual have to my family and friends um, and, and people in wider society, but also my obligations as a group member. Um, 
and that's, uh, I think, a separate question from the question of what group obligations there are. Um, so yes, there are going to be limits on morality's demands. Um, if morality um, demanded that you have no free time, spend no time on your own leisure, etc., cetera, uh, you would quickly burn out. Um, my argument is that your obligations as a group member have to be somewhere in the mix. They have to take some consideration um, on your part as an individual. Um, they can't be ignored completely. They have to be balanced off, weighed off against your other obligations um, in, your, in your kind of overall deliberation about what to do within the constraints of moral demandingness. So we're all members of many groups of, uh, from tennis clubs to council areas to states. We're also all members of the human race. Does that mean we've all now got responsibility as members of the human race for providing human rights? That's a really good example. So my framework produces the result that the human race is not the kind of group that can have a moral duty. There's no established decision-making procedure. There is the United Nations, uh, but that's a, a group that has states as members, doesn't actually have individual citizens, individual people as members. Um, so that's a slightly more complicated case. Um, there's no group that is the entire human race, um, but that um, is united under an established decision-making procedure that can abide by sort of moral considerations. Um, so that's not the kind of group that can bear duties. In saying that, though, one thing that I argue is that just because some groups can't have duties, so the human race is not a moral agent, it can't take in moral considerations, it can't have duties, just because that's the case, that doesn't mean um, that there are kind of no obligations around something like human rights um, or global poverty or climate change or any of these other really large-scale problems that we tend to want to see large-scale action on. So what I want to say about those kinds of problems that we face is there's no group that has an obligation. Saying that humanity has an obligation to respect human rights, I think, is um, not very action-guiding. It allows people to sort of hide behind this sort of thin veneer of, oh, well, the group has the responsibility, so I don't have the responsibility. Because just, just to explain that, in the case of a formal group like ACU, if ACU has an obligation, it's kind of clear whether I can use my role to help ACU do that obligation and what I can do within my role to help ACU do that. If humanity or the human race had an obligation, I don't have any particular role, I don't have any particular job description that I could use to help humanity do, do its duty. There's no formal structure there. There's no organisation role chart, if you like, in humanity, right? Whatever a seven billion person role chart would look like, I shudder to think. Uh, so it's not very action guiding for individuals to say the human race has an obligation because what is my role within the human race? What is my job? You know, I, I have no role within that structure. There is no structure. So it's not action guiding. It allows um, people to sort of hide behind not doing anything because they don't have any roles. But I think uh, what that means is that instead of talking about the obligations of the human race, the moral duties of the human race, we should instead say 
Each individual human has certain obligations. They're not related to the group because to relate them to the group kind of just places mud over everything. It's very confusing. There's no, as I said, there's no role chart there. There's no decision-making procedure. Instead, we should say each individual human has an obligation to do what they can within the kind of overall moral calculus I was discussing earlier. You've got to balance these things off against all your other obligations. But within that, each individual human has an obligation to do what they can with regards to uh, things like uh, the right against torture, the, uh, the right to life, or the, or the human rights that, uh, that are in the various uh, UN declarations. So we can have human rights without having a group duty as humanity. The rights and the duties don't necessarily match up in a, an equivalent calculus. Yeah, so this gets quite technical at this point. So many philosophers want to say, if I've got a right to something, someone has to have an obligation to give me that very thing. So if I have a right to my house, then you have an obligation not to interfere with my house. And actually, the content of my right isn't to my house because that's not something that can be the content of a duty. You can't have a duty to my house. That doesn't really make sense. My right has to be a right that no one enters my house without my consent. And then everyone has an obligation not to enter my house without my consent. So... Most philosophers, and I'm, I agree with them on this, tend to think that the content of a right, like my right that no one enters my house, has to have exactly the same content as the duty that correlates with that right. So you have a right, sorry, you have a duty rather, not to enter my house. With something like, um, say, take the human right to subsistence, which is something that philosophers have argued about quite a lot. So the right to you know, minimum uh, water, food, shelter, healthcare, minimal sort of subsistence goods, the things that keep you at a bare minimum of being alive. Um, the right to these goods um, is quite tricky to, to precisely specify the content of because no one can have a duty to give you all of those things. At least there are some people in the world for whom no one can have a duty to give them all of those things. They live in a failed state. Um, they live in a, in a contested area um, or a war zone. And for these people, um, no one has the ability to give them all of the subsistence goods. So it looks like then no one can have a duty to give them those subsistence goods. And then it starts to look like, well, then they can't have a right to it if the right and the duty have to have exactly the same content. Um, I think the way to kind of get around this is to say, look, the, the interests that ground the duties are the interests in food, shelter, water, these bare basic minimum um, goods. And the right is the right that every other agent on earth, group or individual, does what they can within the limits of their powers and the limits of their kind of competing obligations to see to it that you enjoy those goods. Um, and that's the content of the right and the content of the duty. So the upshot of all this, I said it, got, it gets quite technical, but the upshot of all this is that um, because there's no duty on humanity, because that's, you know, just a 
chimera, it's not very action guiding, what even is humanity, as, you know, it's not a group with the procedures, etc. Because humanity can't have an obligation to give everyone in the world these subsistence goods. We have to rather say, okay, the human right is to every other agent doing what they can to, to um, ensure that a particular person enjoys these goods. Um, and it makes the human rights slightly less... Um, rousing or um, um, exciting. It makes the human the content of the right a bit more complicated because the right is that everyone else does what they can within the constraints that they face. You know, it, it's a little more hedged. The content is a little more hedged. And I can see why people don't like that. But what I think is good about it is that it, it actually guides action. So it actually says, okay, everyone on earth has an obligation to do what they can within these constraints. Rather than humanity, humankind has this duty. The human race has this duty, which I think doesn't doesn't guide anyone at all. And in a way, is that situation where you could have that cop out? If it's a human Ex right, if the, if the human race had the obligation, then well, it's the human race. It's not me. Exactly, because there's no role chart, there's no organisational flow chart that really connects me up to the human race. And again, we can contrast with the example of ACU, where there is an organisational road chart that really hooks me into ACU. Um, because we've got no um, procedure that hooks each individual into the human race, it allows us to get off the hook and say, oh, well, it's humanity's problem, not mine. What do I have to do with humanity? You know, what, what's my connection to the human race? Um, because everyone can get off the hook in that way. I actually think you're, you're more likely to see shirking on obligations if you frame it in that more aspirational, more rousing way where we say there is a human right to subsistence. Humanity has an obligation to give subsistence. I think, no, no, let's let's be clear. Let's give the obligations to the, the agents that can bear obligations, which is sort of structured groups and also individuals, and be a little more precise about what the content of those obligations are. This question about humanity is a big issue because we are living in ever larger society. So in a traditional society, if you belong to a village of 75 people, you could reasonably have um, a sense of your obligations to all of them. Now our actors are states and multinationals and social media groups um, filled with individuals we don't even know. Does that mean we need to become more aware of the moral content of group behaviour? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. As uh, we're members of larger groups, more diffuse groups, and just more groups, um, it becomes more and more important that we think of ourselves as acting uh, in this kind of very global, very networked, very large-scale context. Um, of course, that was always the case, you know, hunter-gatherer society. If, if our group went in and um, hunted a certain... Um, animal, then your group can't go and hunt that animal. We've always had effects on people that we don't know or people that um, that we don't interact with directly. Uh, but with the rise of the internet and um, supply chains operating globally, you know, the clothes that I'm wearing probably were made overseas. I have no idea all the individuals that were involved in the production of the clothes I'm wearing. Uh, with, with the rise of these kinds of um, economies where supply chains are so spread and include so many people, um, we become more and more connected to people that um, we can't see, that we don't know the names of, um, and it requires us to um, contextualise our actions a bit more and think, um, well, 
how can I sort of act within, again, the constraints that I face and all the competing obligations that I have um, to try and make sure that I do the, you know, do the right thing by the people that I'm indirectly interacting with. I mean, I'm interacting with someone who you know, got paid to make the clothes I'm wearing, even though I don't know who that individual is. I've never seen them. Um, so this yeah, creates obligations to just think more about you really are interacting with that with that individual, and that's an individual human too. Um, of course, it's very psychologically difficult because our our brains evolved in this time where, you know, we lived in groups of a few hundred, and you pretty much knew everyone that you saw yourself as having obligations to. I think, yeah, we've somehow got to try and and, and overcome that evolved way of thinking um, to realise that we're now enmeshed with a lot more people than we than we were when our, when our moral sensibilities evolved. So it's okay to make moral demands of companies and organisations and countries, but it certainly doesn't get us off the hook. Uh, doesn't Does not get us off the hook as individuals, absolutely not. So, and that's for two reasons, um, which we've sort of already alluded to. So the first reason is we're all members of companies and states and so on. So when companies and states have obligations, we have obligations. So that's one reason it doesn't get us off the hook. Another reason it doesn't get us off the hook is that even when you have these um, these contexts where there's no one individual or even one group that's to blame. So again, you know, take uh, take the production of clothes and, and sort of sweatshop labour conditions. Uh, Every company in that supply chain is going to say, well, we're just, you know, trying to scrape by. We're just trying to make shareholders happy. We're just trying to turn a profit. They're all going to sort of have these excuses for why they're behaving the way they're behaving. So it's and because they together don't form a group agent, um, uh, it's it's quite difficult to sort of pin the blame down. But what you have to do is say, OK, well, then it falls a bit back on the consumer as well as on those various um, companies within the supply chain to um, to think about uh, their impact on the world. So both as members of organised groups we have obligations and as members of unstructured groups like uh, clothing supply chains where we're at the end there as the consumer, um, in both of these sorts of contexts, the, the structured context and the, if you like, unorganised, unstructured context, we're going to have obligations as individuals. So as employees, as consumers, as shareholders, as citizens, we're all both subject to group duties and carrying a great many duties as individuals. Yes, that's the idea. And I should emphasise as well that although this might sound very demanding and like it's really like loading our plate with moral obligations, uh, none of this is actually are revisions of the foundations of ethical theory. So, as you know, it's, we've always thought, you know, going back to Aristotle, that virtue requires, you know, beneficence and humility and and, and, and all these kinds of behaviours. Morality has always been very demanding. Um, what the theory of group duties tells us is, yeah, morality is still very demanding, but you can't just think about the sort of individuals that you're interacting with in a, in a very small scale, micro level basis. You've got to also think about the large groups that you're a member of, groups like Australia or ACU. Um, and you've got to think about um, the fact that you're a member of these very, very large unstructured groups, groups like humanity or groups like uh, the people involved in clothes manufacture and production and consumption. Um, so at the sort of the foundations aren't changing. It's still, you know, be beneficent, um, be be brave, be do what you can to help others or to fix harms that you've done or to keep your promises. But the theory of group duty says, OK, 
okay, you've got to notice that when you're implementing those kinds of principles, um, you've got to implement them at this group level as well as at the sort of very small scale micro interaction level. Dr. Stephanie Collins, thank you so much for joining us on Thinking Philosophy, a podcast of the Australian Catholic University. Thanks too to Trey Karunarathna, one of our talented media production students at ACU for his work on the show. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to share it and rate it on your podcast provider so other people can enjoy it too. I'm Deborah Stone, and you've been listening to Thinking Philosophy. 